0: When your questions about life turn into questions about money, there's Erica, the virtual financial assistant to help you spend, save, and plan smarter. Only from Bank of America. What would you like the power to do? Erica is only available in the English language. You must download the latest version of the mobile banking app, only available on select mobile devices. Your
1: chat may be recorded and monitored for quality assurance. Message and data rates and additional terms may apply. Bank of America and A member FDIC.
0: Life is a highway
1: and welcome to The Rest is Money with me, Steph McGovern. And with me,
0: Robert Peston.
1: So we have a special episode for you today, focusing particularly on small businesses. We've talked a lot, haven't we, about the big tech giants, the retailers, the pharma companies, but we wanted to kind of zoom in On the brilliant small businesses that we have in this country in particular because there's a a huge amount of businesses out there bringing in over 1.6 trillion pounds in turnover every year these small businesses so we want to shine a light on them talk about what's happening and you know how do you expand when you're a small business and how do you export as well and just look at what's what's going on in that arena
0: and how important they are to our prosperity
1: so a small business is a company that employs fewer than 50 people has a turnover of up to 10 million and you know roughly 5 million on the balance sheet. Now as things stand in this country they employ small businesses 13.1 million people. So that's about 48% of people employed in the UK private sector. In terms of turnover it's something like 1.6 trillion pounds which is about 36% of private sector turnover. So these businesses are really important.
0: They're massively important, whether it's in terms of employment, and also in terms of the great challenge this country faces, which we've talked about a lot, which is the absence of growth at the headline GDP level, but also in terms of productivity, because what we do have in this country, as we've talked about before, is we have some very big companies that are highly productive. Unfortunately, very, very, very large numbers of small businesses have seen their productivity stagnate over the last 15 years. And that has been associated with this stagnation in terms of people's living standards and in the economy. And so getting the small business sector excited growing again, boosting productivity. Nothing could be more important Mm. in terms of regenerating the income and wealth of this country.
1: There was some research out recently by the Federation of Small Businesses, which obviously represents them. And they quite regularly survey their members. And looking at kind of the last quarter of the year, which is their latest research, they asked them about how they feel you know, looking forward. And 12% of them expect to reduce employee numbers this year. There were 10% who also expect to grow the number of employees, but you know, slightly higher number saying they're gonna cut staff. And the big kind of barrier to them expanding at the moment, they're saying the thing that's holding them back from growing and the labor costs, 27% of them are saying labor costs are a big barrier to growth. So if you're looking at those stats, and I know that doesn't represent every small business, they survey out something like 800 of them to get this information. And there are a lot more than that. It's the fact that, you know, that at the moment, things don't feel great. So it's, if you're a small business, you're going to hunker down rather than thinking about an expansion, aren't you? If, if times are tough.
0: And so that's the concern at the moment. I was very struck by some recent research by Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs of course being, you know, an enormous, um, you know, American global investment bank, typically representing the world's biggest businesses, particularly when it comes to issuing shares, issuing bonds, M&A and all of that. But they've done some detailed research in respect of the challenge for small business in the UK. And they pointed out that only 37% of UK small businesses, and they're saying that's about 450,000 of them, are achieving productivity growth, right? So the vast majority of small businesses, to go back to the point I'm making why this matters, are really struggling to improve output per hour work output per employee. And just to repeat what we've told you on this show many, many times, there is no growth in wages. There is no growth in incomes for any of us if we can't improve, you know, the amount that we each produce. Now, I have to say it's a necessary condition of incomes going up cause you can get productivity increases and then the owners take all the benefits. They don't necessarily you know, pay it to us in wages. But the truth is we can't get our wages up unless we find ways to improve that productivity. And so you know, this does take us back to that extraordinarily important challenge of what do you do to get these businesses improving their efficiency, their productivity. There's one way of doing that, which I think many people would worry about, but is very likely to be a consequence of the kind of gloom that you're talking about, which is you can just cut the number of people that you employ and get the rest to do more. And I think there is a slight risk at the moment in terms of where we're in the the economic cycle, that that's where we may be for a bit. But what you really need is... Actually, to encourage businesses, particularly that we've talked a lot about AI, but I mean, you know, to invest in all sorts of new yeah. ways of doing business that increase the efficiency of their employees and so get more out of what of the people they've got, or even indeed yeah. employ more people.
1: So, I spend quite a lot of time talking to small businesses, and a lot of them are businesses in sectors that were really hit by COVID. So they've come out of COVID and you know, they're obviously they're building up their business again. They would be so scared to spend money on tech at a time when they're just building up their balance sheets again, when they're just getting themselves, you know, back to normal, back to pre-pandemic business levels. So, you know, there isn't that incentive to to spend, to invest on, on tech at the moment. And you can understand that, can't you? If you're thinking, I just need to get through the next six months, I just need to get through this year, I just need to pay my rents, my business rates, whatever else it is you've got, my wages, keep my staff going, then investing in tech just feels like a million miles away for people, even though, yes, it would help productivity. There's just that fear that that is going to be money that they don't necessarily have at the moment or that they just need to keep in case anything else crazy happens of like we've seen over the last few years.
0: I mean, look, we shouldn't run away from the fact that there have been some incredibly difficult headwinds if you were a business that was exporting a lot to the EU the costs, the bureaucracy of doing that, has gone up very, very significantly as a result of of Brexit. That you know has been one set of very significant
1: Brexit shattered challenges. people. Let's um, face it.
0: And then closer to home, we've just had a, you know a whole series of other really serious challenges. We shouldn't forget that. For most small businesses, all they've known is an era of very low inflation and very cheap credit. Mm. And so, you know, since we've seen that global, but it's been particularly bad in the UK, surge in costs um, that you know that was a real challenge to people who'd never known about how to, you know, manage costs rising at that kind of rate. Yeah, and indeed for those businesses that relied on credit, having suddenly. To cope with an interest rate regime where, you know, certainly in nominal terms, in headline terms, the cost of borrowing suddenly
1: soared. Yeah, well, that's it. It, it. It's all, you know, meaning that they don't have the money to invest on improving their productivity. Because, you know, I've seen this with, um mentioned Slime, I owe you 20 quid. But with the Utopia business, we've got three shops now. We are expanding to other places around the country. The bureaucracy is off the scale. We've been negotiating with landlords for months and months, and then they change the parameters of what they want, and then it goes to the board, and the boarder gets sniffy about slime, and then we have to start again with another landlord there's so much more than just running your business. There's all the bureaucracy on top of it as well, as well as all the the cost of business rates and everything else. And so you can understand why, and I've heard this from various small business people I've talked to before, is that some are just like, I'm happy with my lot. I don't really want to expand. And we're looking now at expanding abroad as well, because we had a guy who came in uh, from visiting from Malta and he's like, I want, oh, you should have this in Malta for my kids as well. And then he's actually got a big business out in Malta so he's been talking to us about opening a shop there but it's like do you take that risk when you're then going to be putting the staff you employ at risk if it goes tits up and then you know you end up owing loads of money that you can't afford so that's the thing you're constantly trying to balance as a small business is is it worth it is it worth trying to grow and you know you can see the longer term view of yes we could make money here but you could risk everything you've got and some people aren't willing to take that I mean
0: when you were Setting up your business, I, I don't know whether it was all funded from your own resources or yeah, borrowed. But I was, was I was, yeah. re- I was really struck again. You know, the Goldman Survey said more than a third of businesses were just unable to access the finance they need for their business in the UK. Now, some of them might have thought about looking abroad to try and finance. You were talking about yeah. expansion abroad, so, you know, but a, a tiny proportion—only one in five—would look to foreign sources of finance interestingly the more ambitious perhaps slightly braver businesses happen to be the more ath- ethnically diverse businesses and they tended to be more open both mm. to you know international expansion but also financing from abroad but i think that is quite shocking that you know more than a third of businesses are saying that getting the finance they need here is difficult yeah. but i'm afraid this does reflect what you typically see when you go through a period of economic stagnation, which we are going through at the moment, which is that banks, you know, who have historically been the primary source of finance for small and medium-sized businesses become much more risk-averse. And this has been a problem we've lived with for decades and has never been solved.
1: It's interesting, though, because every time, you know, it's what is it, every five or ten years, you get a chancellor who comes out and says, right, I, you know, we're going to double exports. What was it? George Osborne, I remember in 2012, was like, we're going to double exports to a trillion by 2020. You know, fast forward to now, and now we're in the what was announced as the race to a trillion, made in the UK, sold to the world. And now we want to try and get exports to a trillion by 2030. It's not working, is it? Like not enough's been done to help businesses here, to expand globally, to sell their wares or their services or whatever it is abroad. You know, we get these grand statements from the government and all this promise of help and it doesn't seem to be making any difference. And I appreciate there's also a lot of other trade barriers in terms of like geopolitical volatility can affect it, supply chain disruptions. We've seen what's happened with the Red Sea and all that caper and then, you know, inflation, Brexit, everything else. There are so many barriers, but... Other countries are better at it than us. Like Germany, for example, they're way more supportive of you know their businesses exporting, and therefore they have a lot more that do do that. Why are we so rubbish at it here? Do you think?
0: Well, I mean, I think historically there has been not brilliant support for you know businesses, or at least as you say, not as good as what we've seen in other exporting countries like Germany. Although I think it is also important to recognize that Germany being a much more manufacturing economy, I mean, still, you know, it's Germany like us, still a developed economy, it's still, you know, the biggest sector is still services, but their manufacturing sector is way bigger than ours. Traditionally, barriers to exporting services around the world are way higher than barriers for- Because of regulation. Um, Typically, there are regulatory barriers in other countries You know, when it comes to selling the kind of services in which we excel, whether it's finance, whether it's legal, actually barriers when it comes to consultancy are less, certainly less than they used to be. I mean, these are the businesses in which we excel. And therefore, one of the things that successive governments have tried to do is to create a freer trading environment globally for services. But that's a long process. And we have had some success. Obviously, one of the things that we were desperately trying to encourage before we left the EU was the extension of the European single market to include much more in the way of services. That was work in progress. Now that we've left the EU, we are... Again, engaged in trying to make it easier for our really powerful service sector to sell into the EU. It is a game, but it's a very hard grind and it is very slow work.
1: Yeah, because I was looking at um, a press release recently from the government, which is about encouraging a boost to British services exports. 500,000 pounds is what they're committing to help UK professionals such as architects, auditors, and accountants export their services around the world. 500 grand that's not,
0: yeah. I mean, it's certainly it's like, not, not enough to make a, a significant difference. And I think there are other respects in which some people would say the government has been a bit disappointing. I mean, they have made commitments at different times to make sure that government procurement concentrates yes. on more on getting stuff from small and medium-sized businesses. And I think from memory, they were committed to getting something like a third from small and medium-sized businesses. And I don't think they've ever gone much above a fifth. And actually, I think if you look at the proportional share, even though the share that they take from small and medium-sized businesses has gone up in money terms, actually as a proportion of government spending, it's actually gone down. And so you know there's definitely more that the government could and should be doing
1: yeah and I don't think we can just blame the government to be fair why not <laughs> yeah well as much as we'd all like to but as you know this episode is sponsored by Wise and they've actually done some research into this as well they commissioned some census wide research and they surveyed 3,000 small businesses nationwide and they found that the high cost of international banking is actually one of the major barriers to expanding abroad so they're saying that a quarter of them were put off because of this, which is a similar amount to those put off by the regulation we've just been talking about. And it's more than things like the higher tariffs or supply chain disruption you might get from um, exporting as well. And what they're talking about in particular is it's to do with the small markups on exchange rates. So, you know, consumers will have them too, but it's a much bigger problem for businesses because of the high volume of money that's involved with these transactions, these international exchange Transactions and last year they worked out it cost businesses 2.8 billion pounds to particularly small businesses, which is a hell of a lot of money, isn't it? So they're they're calling, Wiser calling for international payment providers to be forced to list their hidden fees. You know. Basically showing the markup they're taking on the exchange rates they offer, which the European Parliament has already announced support for for legislation that'll do that. It's called the end the opt-out campaign, just to get rid of those hidden fees. They're saying that is an easy fix, that'll be an easy win to help small businesses trade abroad and you know grow abroad if they don't have these hidden fees. So there's it's a complex picture, isn't it? It's about regulation, it's about a lack of government support, it, you know, international banking fees. There's so many things that you can see when Be quite overwhelming to a small business when they're thinking about expanding.
0: No, that's totally right. I mean, look, my own view is that when it comes to the fundamentals, we've talked a lot about skills, and we definitely have a skills deficit in this country. And so there's much more than any government that all governments should be doing to improve the skills of the workforce. Yeah, because tell
1: me about setting up your charity, Speakers for Schools, because it is about getting the right people as well to run your organisation, isn't it, to do well?
0: Yeah, I mean, look, I I created Speakers for Schools about 15 years ago now. And the big lesson of setting up any kind of institution, whether it's a charity, as it was in this case, or a small private sector business, is if you don't get the people right, you're in real... Trouble, And I have been, you know, a- amazingly fortunate in the sense that the vast majority of the people who used to work for us and still work for us are, you know, incredibly dedicated and motivated people. But we have had really quite scary moments where we've taken on somebody who is just wrong, hmm. uh, who don't get us, or who might offend certain people who work for us, managing your way through that particularly when you know we currently employ over a hundred people, but when you've only got five people, which is you know where we were at the yeah, beginning. Yeah, when you're starting out. Um, you know, if only one or two of those goes wrong, you know that's almost yeah. curtains, as it were. So you know the fundamental lesson for anybody. Creating employment is, you know, the quality of your people matters more than anything. And uh, I mean, you set up businesses. It's a big responsibility. It
1: is. And, you know, it's so fascinating because you're right. If you get someone brilliant, it can be transformative for your business. But we've had loads of problems. Hiring, you know, people to to do the retail side of the business and be, you know, front of house in the shop, and you know, we've had, we've got ended up with quite a lot of jobbing actors who were, you know, when they're not doing the players or the telly or whatever will come in and do shifts with us where they're running the lessons for the kids. So it's basically teaching kids how to make slime. There's a lot of science behind it all. And, you know, it's very interactive and all that jazz. But we've had instances, wait until you hear this. So we had this person we'd employed, they'd done an amazing interview and then they phoned in sick on their first day I mean, even if I was sick, I'd drag myself in for work if it was the first day. But anyway, we obviously were like, well, you know, things happen. And then the person came in the next day and did half a shift and then left and then phoned in sick the next day. Then they claimed there was some crazy crisis in their family, so couldn't do the fourth day. And it just went on like that. Needless to say, they've now left the company. But it's just staggering that. And maybe they did have just everything went wrong that week. But even still, I think there's just a very different view of, you know, work now these days. I know you've got big thoughts on the kind of Gen Z, millennial and their attitudes to work. That could be a whole other episode because I do, I feel like there are big differences, I think, in terms of work ethic. And maybe that is me now aging and turning into a granny who's now like, they don't work as hard as we did when we were their age. But I do feel a bit like that at the moment.
0: (laughs) No, but there there, there are observable differences. I mean, one of the things that I did find frustrating within the charity when we got above a particular size is, you know, we did take on some people who just, you know, had a uh, a habit of not looking at their emails after a certain time and therefore getting old of people after a certain time in the evening. And that's very different from the world in which we grew up in which, you know, particularly if you worked in the media as as we do, where, you know, broadly you just take it for granted that if something important happens or something big happens, somebody's going to bother you. Yeah,
1: our team have had to get used to the fact that you quite frequently WhatsApp us at midnight sorry. to suggest your ideas so, for a show that's so, happening three days sorry, later. So. I, I, okay. <laughs> but it's true, though. I think there is that. I can see the absolute genius of the younger generation in that they are getting better work-life balance than we ever have but equally it's frustrating getting those generations to work together when you've got such different views of hours and you know commitment and things like that Um, should we have a quick break why not life is a highway and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches but there's
0: only one Mc Crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Just to sort of get back to that issue about finance, I mean, the big, in a way, breakthrough that we had at Speakers for Schools was when I met a very successful hedge fund manager, a bloke called Andrew Law, and he has a large charitable foundation and has been prepared very generously through his foundation. To fund our expansion. And he came in as chairman and has just been the most fantastically supportive partner as we've gone from, as I say, five people to 120, 130 people providing work experience for underprivileged kids and providing these free inspirational talks within state schools. Now, it shows you how important reliable finance are is. Yeah. You know, whether you're in the Private sector or the voluntary sector. And again, one of the flaws in the British economy is. It's not just finance to keep you going. It's not just working capital. It's finance for expansion. And it's particularly the absence of finance in this country to go from being a moderately successful small to medium-sized business to a potential world leader. And the other thing that we've just got to get right, and we are not getting right at the moment, is when you get those unusual small and medium-sized businesses that aren't just going to tick over, but have the potential to become world world leaders. The problem at the moment is they all think we can only become a world leader if we sell ourselves to an American giant or to a Japanese giant. We don't have the, the pools of capital in this country to keep these companies British so that we expand the universe out of our small businesses of enormous global businesses. We are not creating enough enormous global businesses In this country, we've got the seed corn, as it were, in the sense we are still creating brilliant small businesses, but we do not have the ecosystem here. To develop those into global multinationals, they do still feel that they've got to go abroad to achieve that aim.
1: Yeah, which is sad, really, isn't it? Although maybe a nation totally built on small businesses is okay, though, if there's enough of them doing good stuff.
0: Well, if they are improving their productivity and and growing incrementally, it's not that you can't do very well. Germany shows that you know they have an at least what they call the Mittelstand. You know they yeah. have done incredibly well. Out of having a whole series of these medium-sized, often family-controlled businesses that have been highly productive, but they do also have world leaders, you got to have both.
1: So, in summary then, what needs to change? We need to have better government support, better commitment. I we also
0: need to have economic stability. We've yes. had so much instability over the last five years. We, you know, We need economic stability. But if
1: that doesn't come because it might not, because there might be more geopolitical things that happen or whatever or else. Or domestic crisis. Yeah, or domestic crisis, yeah. So if that doesn't happen, though, what can businesses do themselves? That That's the thing. You're only in control of what you can control. I mean, I
0: always think it's very simple. You know, it's about knowing what you're good at, sticking to your knitting, not taking excessive Risk, risks, yeah. and at the right moment, then taking controlled risks to Expand. And I think that, you know, the fundamental point here is that over the years we have tended as a nation to glorify the household name big businesses goldman sachs uses this phrase you know the heroes of the small and medium sized business sector and they focus on the ones that are growing productivity and the challenge right now and it's an enormously important challenge and it's an enormously important opportunity if we can simply get the small businesses that aren't growing their productivity, to learn from those that are, actually the wealth creation for this country could be off the charts. And therefore, one of the most important challenges of all for any new government is to share the lessons of the successful small businesses with the less successful because if you can do that, then the rewards for all of us would be very significant.
1: Next week, it's the budget and normally the Chancellor will send himself off to a business to do all the interviews from the following morning, don't they? It's always big businesses though, isn't it? It's normally them in a hard hat and hivers somewhere. Do you think next week we'll have the same?
0: I think that, that the people at the top of the Tory party, top of the Labour party, they understand the importance of small businesses, but the problem, you might argue, is although they understand how important they are to us, they're still not doing enough, okay? to help those that aren't performing well to perform better. That, as I say, is going to be so important you know, to get us out of this stagnation that we're trapped in.
1: Obviously, we don't know everything about what it's like running a small business. So if you are one out there and you want to tell us about, you know, what's going on in your business, what you think the issues are, where you think the opportunities are as well, maybe you're smashing it at the minute and you want to tell us what you're doing, just email us restismoney at com, or you can find us on our social media pages as well. Just search The Rest Is Money.
0: We absolutely love hearing from you, you know, Tell us what you like about the show. Pose us some questions. Even tell us what you don't like. We want to hear from you. We want to understand. We want to learn. Now, tomorrow, we are interviewing somebody who doesn't, you know, manage, own an enormous business, but he owns a business that is not really small. And that is the boss of It started small,
1: didn't it? It started as a small business. started with his great-great-grandfather selling shoelaces in 1860. So, in,
0: in that sense... You know, it is a fantastic story about how you start small and end up big.
1: Yeah, right, that's it from us. Bye-bye.
0: And bye-bye from me.